Hey, everybody. I hope you're doing well today as you're listening to this. I'm really excited to be able to bring this episode to you with Scott Belk, who's the director of jazz studies at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music, as well as he teaches applied trumpet there. And then he has uh, flexibility books that he has written that uh, a lot of people in the trumpet community especially will be familiar with. So we just talk a lot about practice and how to organize your practice and get a lot out of it and make sure that it reflects what you, you you want and the way you want to do work. So I hope that this really helps you and 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 thinking about practice in a, in a new way, in a way that uh, allows you to be able to get quality work out of your time in the practice room. Uh, if you do enjoy it, I'd really appreciate it if you wouldn't mind sharing it on social media so other people can find it. So uh, that would help me out a lot and I'd really appreciate it. Um, also, I wanted to say, if you haven't had a chance to check out the Gold Method app, I'll leave a link in the description for that. It's basically my practice organization that is made available for you. You can use the code GOLD21 when you're subscribing to get a free month of the app. And I hope that that tool can serve to help you get a lot out of your practice as well, kind of in the way that I think about doing things so you can kind of see what that's like if you're interested. Um, I want to make sure that you also stick around to the end of the episode where you'll hear the secret message from our mastering engineer, Brandon Yoakum. Uh, he always leaves some really nice tidbits, whether it's funny or something thought provoking. So make sure you check out that. And finally, uh, before we get started, I just want to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar with them, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of product services and resources to the brass playing community. As brass players, the mouthpieces we choose to use will have a huge impact on the sound of our instrument, and it will pretty much determine how easy it is to produce that sound as well. And unfortunately, many of us find ourselves playing on mouthpieces that are ill-suited for our needs, and it makes things a lot harder than it needs to be to play. If you're interested in trying out a new mouthpiece, Houghton Horns is the place to go. Houghton Horns has a wide selection of mouthpieces to choose from, including Giddings, Greg Black, Pickett, and many more. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Good morning, everyone. I hope you're well. Welcome back to another episode of That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Uh, I am Ryan Beach, and today I am here with Scott uh, Belk. He is the director of jazz studies at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. He also teaches uh, some applied trumpet there. And uh, most of a lot of people will know him, especially trumpet players, uh, because he is uh, incessant about his Facebook promotions of his flexibilities uh, exercises. He's got two flexibility books that have come out recently. One is Modern Flexibilities for Brass and two is Progressive Lip Flexibilities for Brass. I hope I got that right. Yeah. Um, for me, and I think a lot of people agree, I think you've gotten a lot of feedback in this way. What's cool about your these exercises is that it's sort of, well, A, they're not 
they're not boring, right? Like you're not just doing, and I've heard you talk about how you came up with this, actually. You're not just doing one sort of overtone series the whole time. But what I like about them, actually, is like once you learn them, like the focus of attention for me shifts a little bit from what is the... What, what are the notes to what's the pattern? Mm-hmm. Because at a certain point you get so fast that it's really difficult to actually think about the notes themselves. And you're sort of more in this like, maybe even kind of what you're talking about, this Zen spot of just trying to follow the pattern. And um, I find it to be just very engaging, the exercise to be very engaging. I've learned through my, the way I kind of do things, I've learned a lot of them actually, you know, learned like three or four of them per month for like five or six months in there. So um at any rate, uh, this is exciting for me to, I know that Scott has a lot of ideas about practicing and just how we should approach that to be um, effective and efficient and productive and things like that. But it sounds like he and I have slightly differing views of what that looks like. So I'm excited to hear from him and to um, be challenged in that way. Before we get started, I just want to say thank you so much for giving me your time this morning and being willing to chat. Oh, my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. I, I follow uh, a lot of the, the stuff that you're, you're posting and, and talking about and, uh, and with great interest. And, and there is some definite, definite intersection. And there's some, like we said, we, we talked a little bit beforehand, and, and there's definitely some, some divergence too. And, and I think that's actually where it gets interesting. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that for sure. Um, <laughs> we'll start with uh, just to help us ground on you know where you come from and so we can kind of get a sense of where you're coming from when you say some of these things why don't you just take us back to where you got started with music however far back you want to go and then kind of take us through some of your career and how you got to where you are now well all right you know i i don't go back too far uh generally but for for i guess the purposes of, of our discussion and I walked out on my front porch when I was in sixth grade and my best friend was Jimmy Cutright and he was walking by and I said, where are you going, Jimmy? And he said, I'm going to go get a trumpet. I'm going to play in band. And I thought, hey, that sounds like a good idea. I'd never thought of it up to that point. And uh, I went in immediately and I said, mom, I want to get a trumpet. I want to play in band. It was totally out of the blue. And I was a complete follower for all of, all of my uh, younger years. And uh, she worked at the radio station as the sales director, my mom. And she said, well, you know, the, there were two music uh, stores in my hometown in Morgantown, West Virginia. And one of them was her account, one of her accounts. And she said, ah, I can get, uh, I'll, I'll make a call. She said, but it's not like the piano. You actually have to practice this. <laughs> so uh, I walked down uh, that day to DeVincent's music store and I got my, I got my trumpet. Uh, Jimmy got his uh, at the uh, Follies, which is the other other one, we went back to my uh, room and, and made airplane noises. We had no idea what we were going to do sure. with this thing. And uh, it came with three or five free lessons. I can't remember what it was. And uh, uh, it was a Bundy. And uh, and that was the you know that was sort of the beginning of it. I didn't you know I didn't really get serious about trumpet until about the year uh, I guess about the year 1990, which is unfortunate because I graduated college in 1989. <laughs> so um, a bit of a <laughs> I, uh, I sort of just put together what you yeah. said. It took me a second. <laughs> yeah right. So so I mean I you know did all the things that you do when you're in high school and and uh, you know being in the all state band and marching band and and loved the jazz bands, and, and that was my main interest. And uh, then went to started out at West Virginia University for a couple of years in my hometown, and then transferred to Tennessee in Knoxville. And that was where Jerry Coker was teaching and my, uh, my teacher, Kathy Leach. And uh, this was in the mid-'80s. And 
was really embracing the, the jazz lifestyle of showing up at jam sessions and jazz clubs and sitting in and doing all that without really practicing and uh, sleeping in late and skipping classes and doing all those, those fun <laughs> things that you do. And, uh, and sort of paying attention, but not actually doing anything. And then um, my first professional gig was um, of, of substance was working in a, in a Dixieland band, you know, a, a traditional jazz band at uh, uh, Kings Island Amusement Park. And that got me up to Cincinnati up here. And that was sort of my beginning of my love affair in 87 with, 19, uh, with uh, the, the city of Cincinnati. So um, I don't know how much of this, <laughs> you know, is, is of interest. I, I started a master's up in, um, in Indiana, was there for a short time and kind of ran out of money, went out on cruise ships for a year, did about four different ships, and then uh, went out and did the Miller Band, the Glenn Miller Orchestra for a year. And uh, the I sent the tape. Uh, actually, it was on the last ship I was on. We made a we had a very good band, and uh, we were in San Juan. And we made uh, went into the studio and made tapes of uh, original writing. And I sent that that cassette tape to the Glenn Miller Orchestra, and I sent one to North Texas University of North Texas. And uh, I was out on I got the job on the on the Glenn Miller Orchestra, and I kind of forgot about it. The other about North Texas and then I called home and I was talking to my mom and she said a guy from North Texas called and want to know why you hadn't accepted your scholarship <laughs> it's like, it like I did and I was already on the bus I you know and so I wrote to I wrote to Neil Slater the the director of the program there and I said hey I'm out on the road I'd like to will you hold my scholarship and they said yeah I'll hold your we'll hold your scholarship wow, so awesome. um, came back in in 93 and did a master's and played in the one o'clock for a couple of years uh, the one o'clock lab band which was a great experience and then uh, from Denton into the uh, an Air Force field band up at Wright Patterson Air Force Base and then um, started to lead professional bands do contracting playing shows that was about that time I really started working on my lead playing so I was in my late 20s really became uh, interested in becoming a lead player uh, up to that point I was a quote-unquote jazz player but my degrees were in classical trumpet so but my gigging and my jobbing, you know, was all commercial or jazz. So spent the next, um, you know, five years doing that. Did a, a DMA at uh, CCM where I teach, and then have been doing tenure track jobs and and working as a as a musician ever since. So the last twenty years basically. So, but uh, love to practice. I studied with also studied with Vince DiMartino in the, in the time that I was with uh, in the Air Force as well. So that was a very formative experience. Yeah, I remember the first time I heard Vince. It was in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, at a, jazz, a festival there. It wasn't specifically jazz, but he was one of the artists. And I remember hearing him and being like, "What is happening right now?" You know, like he's so. I don't know him personally at all, yeah. right? But he seems to be just the kind of a pretty relaxed, you know, guy. And so then he puts the horn to his face and screws it in. And you're like, what's he yep. doing? And then he starts playing and it's some of the best trumpet playing I've ever heard. And right. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is, you know, I was a kid too, you know? So I just didn't know like the world out there. And so that was for me in some ways is a pretty, pretty formative thing too, just to hear such a different approach from what I was used to hearing. And it mm -hmm. was, it was so tasty. I remember it was, it was great. Um, Anyway, sorry, that was just a yeah. side story. One thing I want to I want to focus on here that you've said that I think will be really hopefully helpful for people to hear you uh, sort of expand upon. 
there's two aspects of it. Number one is that you said you didn't really get serious about the trumpet until later, which I think some people can have it in their head that if I'm not serious early or you have to make that decision early in your life, if you're going to be successful in a career in music, I was having that conversation with some people in our orchestra a few, you mm -hmm. know, about a month ago that, you know, for they were violinists or string players and they were saying, well, you know, if you're, if you're 15 and you just get started getting serious, you just basically don't have a shot, you know? So I, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Uh, is it different for brass or is that is it just true that you can be successful at any point? And then the other sort of tying that into that is you saying in your late 20s, you became more interested in becoming a lead player as if it's a skill you can develop and not just something that you have <laughs> from birth, right? Because we can, especially right. with range, I think trumpet players can really feel like that's just something you were given and you hear these like high school kids playing double C's or like that's just not something I'm good at. So I'm kind of curious just for your thoughts on not just what that was, because maybe we can talk about that later, but just what's that? What was your mindset in like, I can develop this thing because I'm interested in it versus like I either have it or I don't. So take those in whatever order you want, but I'm curious for okay. your thoughts. So, well, sorry, the first one, um, you know, I, I guess um, uh, maybe, maybe I said I didn't get serious about the trumpet until I, after I graduated from from college, which which I look back at, you know, sort of my track record, and I think that's the case. But I was always interested in it, and I was always in involved in making music, and I tried to do it at the highest level. But I wasn't really interested in doing the work. So I guess what what happened was in you know 1990, after I had graduated from college, I I decided, well, no, I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to do the work, which means I'm going to get diligent about my practice, and. And I didn't know exactly what that was going to entail, but by going up to Indiana, I got into an environment that that was really. Uh, I found it for the first time. I was no longer like a big fish in a small pond, and I saw what other people were playing like. So you know, when we get to the other side, that other question is like, well, you know, what's you know what's this thing about lead playing? I, I got up to IU and I was playing in Dominic Sparrow's band, and and there was a guy named Steve Patrick playing lead trumpet in um, in that band, and, and I got to be friends with Steve. If you don't know who Steve is, Steve is you know one of if not the top call lead players in Nashville for the last twenty five years, and Steve could roll out of bed and play B you know double B flats, and he could play Bs and C sharps and Ds and E flats and and Fs above double C. And he had just come back from playing at, at Disney. And uh, I'd never heard anybody do that live, you know, much less somebody actually younger than I was, you know, just like, whoa, what is, what is this? And I couldn't really process it. Um, and he was a very natural player and had, you know, perfect pitch and all of that. And none of which I felt like, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I just didn't sound like that. And so, you know, the, the idea, I started running into these people that were really great lead players. And I kept trying to ask myself the question, what is it they're doing that's different <laughs> than what I'm doing, you know, and, and what is, and not just, you know, what are they practicing? But how are they engaging with the instrument? What does it look like when they play? What does it sound like when they play? What kind of equipment are they playing? What are they doing differently? Because I, uh, I noticed that they're, uh, most of the great lead players that were at least younger weren't doing a whole, uh, you know, throwing a whole bunches of time practicing exercises. 
So it, it, this is where I think there's a misconception about, it. well, I'm going to do exercises and become a great lead player. It's like, not, no, that's not it. If you want to be a great lead player, you start out as an, as an you know, mediocre lead player and get better. So w- what has to happen and what's missing when people, I think, try to develop their range is, is musical context. So um, what the, the people that you're describing, oh, in high school, they were playing you know, Maynard Ferguson solos. Well, why were they playing? How were they able to play Maynard Ferguson solos? Well, the first thing is they tried to play Maynard, Fer- Maynard Ferguson solos. So if you, you, there's no way to play a Maynard, Maynard Ferguson solo by doing exercises incrementally or progressively like we were talking earlier. And we're just getting a little higher, a little bit higher, a little, you know, whatever. So there's a, there's a, there's a process at which uh, are part of the process that is, is like, well, I have to have be playing literature in some type of situation that requires me to play that way. So if you don't play in a big band, you don't play lead, or you don't have any chance to play lead with live human beings, it's very difficult to get good at it because you you know it's it's hard to do it in the practice room. So you have to be in a situation, in my opinion, that requires you to be able to perform music. Lead music is just part of it. Um, and then you go and say, well, I, you know, you, you play a, a gig or a rehearsal or whatever, and then you go back to the practice room and say, I need to work on this. And then you use the, 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 the practicing to supplement and to, uh, to create a foundational um, basis for you know, getting better on the gig. But if you don't have that perspective of the gig or the performance or whatever, it's extremely difficult. And I think that's one of the things that as someone who's been teaching for many years, I see is that people you know, come and say, well, I want to work on my high range. Well, okay, that's one thing, but that doesn't have, they're not necessarily the same. So, um, and what ends up happening is, is what I've seen is, is that um, the, those students or those players who in eighth grade are playing along with Gospel John or some Maynard solo, uh, and there are f- many fewer of them there now than there are when we were young, but they're still out there. Um, eventually come around to the point, they don't do any of that, or a lot of them don't do any of that fundamental work, or they do very little of it, just enough to kind of get get back, uh, you know, to, to make it work. But almost all of them that I've known have eventually come around to the f- fact where they realize that's unsustainable, and they have to add in or relearn or learn how to do all the fundamental work that's going to m- make all of the other, p- they're playing sustainable into their later careers. So uh, it's it's uh, sort of a misnomer that you go, oh, I'm just gonna sit in a practice room and for five years I'm gonna get better and I'm gonna become a lead player. I didn't have lead playing opportunities or as many as I wanted when I was in the Air Force. This is after I left North Texas. And I had heard, I'd sat next to Scott Engelbright for two years. Scott Engelbright went out and played lead on Maynard's band and was one of his great lead players for, of his, you know, that sort of last maybe 20 years of Maynard's. Yeah. My friends and I used to listen to some recordings yeah. with Scott on there, just yeah. like, what's, yeah, what's going on? Well, what was going on was I was standing right next to him and I was going, what? I was going, what is this is you doing? <laughs> you know, I mean, because I, I don't get that, you know, and, and I, but the thing was, is that I knew it wasn't what I was doing. So when I watched him, when I watched the interface, when I listened to it, I realized that the things that were going on, um, in a player like that, he wasn't thinking about, you know, Clark three or, you know, <laughs> doing pictures at an exhibition. He was just playing and, 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 you know, he was getting good instruction from Jay Saunders and from other, you know, some of the good, the good, uh, you know, teachers that were in that, in that scene. But, you know, it's, it's, there's not a linear path. There's not one way to do it. So, you know, there's going to be some combination. you're looking at, you know, I'm, I'm now 55 and I'm looking back and saying, well, we tend to kind of revise what we would have done differently. And honestly, I don't think I would have done anything differently 
you know, I, I like where I am now. Mm -hmm. And so it's very interesting to me the, the the challenges that I've had to figure out. But most of what happens is 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 it's like it's not one exercise, it's not one thing. It's sitting in a room and figuring out how to play music. Sure. And okay. doing it in a sustainable way. So then if if like let's say specifically developing lead chunks, mm -hmm. if that's going out to the gig, playing music, finding out where you're struggling, where the, 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 the gaps are, so to speak, where the weaknesses are, and then using that to uh, more finely tune the work you do in the practice room to help supplement. And what I would view is gain information about how to navigate passages in that way that mm -hmm. will allow yeah. you to be more successful. Why do we have teachers if that's the way we learn? Well, you know, there, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, Teachers, a lot of, you know, sort of the teachers that I found to be really uh, effective for me are teachers that are coming from a standpoint of, well, you know, I wish somebody would have told me this. <laughs> I wish somebody would have shared this information with me um, or somebody did share this information with me. And I think it can help you get further down your path than maybe I did. Or, you know, our idea is to have for, from a teaching standpoint is to have students outgrow us and to surpass us. So it's it's a mentorship sort of uh, situation that that is you're, you're paying it down the road to the next generation. So I think we rely on teachers too much um, or we rely on little bits of information that we think are going to transform the way we do things. And I think what's missing is is more of a, a we, we, we have and I've talked about this before, when you when you go with a teacher, you're, they're going to say you know, they, they come from different camps or whatever like that, and and you have methods. Here's my method. Here's the Clark method. Here is the you know the Caruso method. Here is Schlossberg's method book. These are these are all ways of approaching things, but um, the methods are supposed to serve the principles, the organizing principles, the overall the overarching principles, and so I, I think what happens is is that we get we get bogged down in methods. We get bogged down in all the, the the details of checking off this and having to move on to the next thing. There's an industrial uh, way of teaching that happens in universities and in at at the certain level where we're going to check off something every week, right? I never had a good lesson in where I I, I walked out of it and thought, well, I nailed that. You know, mm -hmm. I just everything about that lesson was just was nails and 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 I was pretty good, I guess, you know. And I thought about that, you know, I was talking to Anthony McGill, who's the principal clarinetist in the uh, Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Um, I New think. York Phil. New York Phil, sorry, sorry. Um, yeah, but he was here as associate in Cincinnati and, and we were sitting at a jazz club one time about 20 years ago. And I, he went to Curtis and I said, tell me about your lessons at Curtis. And he said, uh, well, for the first, I think year, it was 182 a week. And that was it. All right. So, what are we doing when we're taking lessons? You know, at at you know X State University. Well, we got to do our flow study, and then we're going to do our Chickowitz, and then we're going to do our scales, and then we're going to do our Clark, and then we're going to do our Caruso, and then we're going to do our you know articulation studies, and we've got, and then we're going to do our etude, and then we're going to do our lyrical study, and then we're going to do our literature. And uh, I think what ends up happening is is that um, we get we master none of it so you come through and no freshman 
has mastered anything by the end of the year. There's nothing that they can play without thinking about. It. There's nothing that they have now added to their body of repertoire, or very little, let's put it that way, that they'll play for the rest of their life. It's disposable. So, you know, now, yeah, we're going to play Clark II for the rest of our life, and we're going to use that as a way to, to develop our playing. But the actual, you know, Voxman study or the Herring etude that we do, I don't think we've ever asked our students to really, really get to the point where they can play it without thinking about it. Where we're talking about um, the idea of playing something when efficiently, um, we tend to think physically. Um, you know, this is our, you know, I can do this and not feel fatigued at the end. I have plenty of, I can phrase it, I can shape it, I can do all this different stuff and it doesn't wear me out to play. But I don't think we ever talk about the idea of, you know, a mental efficiency and what that really means. And I, I don't think efficiency is even the word, but uh, we're, we're trying to get to where things are easy. And so, for instance, I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm playing, I have a project that I'm doing right now for myself that I've been doing since last November. And it's a Donna Lee project. Donna Lee is a jazz tune that is sort of an anthem of, of bebop players. And I started out playing, uh, maybe uh, I'm going to play it in a different key every day and try to learn it. And then I also did it and I said, I want to take it down the octave and I want it to be easy and I want to invert the chords so it's at the, in the lower register. And I realized pretty quickly after a couple of weeks that this is, I'm not spending enough time with this to actually learn it. So when I got to the, to the end of, the, of last year, calendar year, I said, okay, let's do this. I've, and um, I'm gonna play each key for two weeks, all right? I'm gonna play it at a minimum of an hour a day and I'm also going to do it first thing. All right, so I'm not gonna do any, you know, I'm gonna flap my chops for 60 seconds. I'm gonna free buzz an F with the tuner, and then I'm gonna play this softly, and I'm gonna work on my technique and my tone and all the things that I would do with Chickowitz and all this other stuff. I'm gonna play that way easily for an hour minimum. And sometimes it's gone an hour and a half or even two hours, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually factor in some just free play. I know how to play the trumpet at this point, so I feel like I can kind of not worry about, you know, messing myself up. And I started doing that, and it was a 26-week project that ended at the end of June. And I realized at the end of June that I still can't do it. And, and I played it in every key and I've, I've put up recordings of me and uh, what I realized was is that was lacking is, is and I, I worked on speed too. So what I did was I, I play it freely for five, five minutes, um, take a, a two minute break or a 90 second break. And then I would play it freely again for five minutes. Same deal, now I go to two minute breaks. Now what I'm doing is, is uh, I'll do that for either full volume, super slow, as if I'm playing a Maggio, like, all right, like that. That takes two minutes at that at that tempo, and take a minute break, and I do it again. All right. So now I'm 15 to 20 minutes in, depending on how if I've taken an extra time. Then I come back after that after a two minute break, and I play it as softly as I can play it. All right. And so I'm 20 minutes in, and I'm still playing the same key. I'm still playing the same melody. I've been doing this for seven months now. All right. So um, so what is that? That's 180 hours minimum, <laughs> actually plus another month. So, um, and 
what has happened is, is then I then I have taken the, these tracks, I put them in the band in a box, I've made it, I've made tracks of the, of the different keys, and I put it into Amazing Slowdowner, and I start at 144, and I start to play it in tempo, and then improvise. Each track is, you know, the track is five minutes, so I play it, and then I rest for two minutes, and then I up at 10% in tempo, and then I up at another 10%. And so at, uh, at 20%, 120% of 144 is 172 beats per minute. So I'm playing 172. And I go all the way up to like 240, <laughs> which I can't play it. And the reason I know that I, I, I can't play it yet is because we were on vacation and I got up real early and I practiced in the bathroom, you know, in the shower. Uh, it was a walk-in shower and I had my practice mute and I, I did Donnelly for uh, an hour and then I did my regular routine afterwards. And then I, my wife is a, She's a French horn player and she's pretty hilarious. And I had my practice meet in. I was walking around, the kids were up, we're in this hotel room and we're gonna go down to breakfast. And I said, ah, I just got done, I was bragging. I, got, I just got done playing Donnelly in D flat or whatever it was. She said, uh, she said, okay, now play it in A, ready, go. And she stuck her face right up against my face and she's like, ready, like she's, she's right here, you know, right, right, you know, staring at me. I couldn't play it. <laughs> Right, and yeah. I was like, I don't know it, right? So my, my point about this um, uh, is is that the the amount of concentration I'm I'm starting to look at things a little differently in terms of like, oh, that felt good, the, you know, that's that's how I used to think of it, or how I still think about it. I want it to feel physically decent to play, but I also want to be able to think, well, to how much of my CPU does it take to really play this? Do I have to be totally dialed in? Do I have to be 100% focused? Do I have to be laser laser uh, focused on this? Or what? Can I play Donna Lee in F sharp at 180 and just be like, let it fall out of the horn and it, no, I just hit the table. Don't yell at me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean like let it fall out of the horn. Like, so, so you, you know, if, if it's mentally easy, you don't need 100% of your capacity to do it. You don't have to be completely like with it. You can like your mind can sort of float a little bit. You don't have to be like, Ugh, you know, I'm all I can do. I'm just doing this thing and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be totally 100% in the moment. And I have to be thinking about it and I have to be singing it. And I have to be. It's like if it's actually easy. Then I don't actually need all of that, that mental effort either. And I think that idea of learning something to where it's not it's not no longer an event, but it's just a thing that you do. And that's how you know when you're um, when you know a piece of literature. Yeah, I knew the the Haydn, the first movement of the Haydn trumpet concerto because I started playing it by ear. I, I would stop looking at it when I, this was about, maybe about 15 years ago when I was doing college auditions, and I was really busy. I was playing shows, but I also was applying for you know gigs where I would have to have a uh, like a uh, you know come in and do a classical recital you know at a at a university. And I knew I was playing the first move of Haydn. So what I would do is I would come home and I would just grab out my E flat. And I would just walk around the, uh, you know, the living room and I would just play, play it like it was a jazz tune, <laughs> right? As opposed to sitting down with my metronome and sitting down with my tuner and doing all this kind of stuff where I'm like, I'm super uh, Germanically, Teutonically uh, uptight about it. I'm just what if I just played Haydn, but it was like it was a jazz tune. And I don't mean like phrasing it like a jazz tune or performing it, but I mean like with the mental attitude that it's just a song. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, what had happened is I ended up uh, memorizing it without intending to memorize it. 
So, and I realized this because I went to, to play a, a college interview and I opened up the part and I realized I hadn't looked at it in weeks, right? And, and I played, I could play the whole movement without chipping anything, without missing anything. And it wasn't because I had sat down to check off playing it perfectly at various tempos, but it was just something that I had learned more of an organically as a song. And so this is sort of like when I look at at the uh, at the database and the and the types of spreadsheets that you do, this is something that I find to be the missing ingredient for me. This type of playing that is is just playing a tune and getting to know it inside and out naturally without a constraint of a time, uh, you know, like a deadline. And then and I'm just as you know, retentive about it. I, I can show you this. You can't see it. The listeners can't see it. This is my practice schedule for the first yeah. 26, 26 weeks of, of 2021. Yeah. Now the problem is, is, is that you can see this is my, this is my Donna Lee project here. Yeah. Um, I didn't get to any of the other crap on, on the whole right side of the, I never like I, that this was unsustainable over here. I didn't do any of it. Right. But I did the crap out of this, and I realized I had to narrow my focus yeah. artistically. Well, so. that's because you're spending two hours doing it. <laughs> right, yeah, I know. So I still do a lot of the things that I've done over the years, but looking at at how I'm at the point where I'm not necessarily, I'm thinking about what I want the experience of playing the trumpet to be for me mentally and musically, and I want to have fun doing it, and I want to embrace that, and I want it to feel like it's something I'm looking forward to doing. And there can be a, a bit of a, a thing like, well, you know, we, we can't be afraid of hard work, and it's, you know, so we, we, there's, a, there's an idea that being organized and being insistent and, you know, and having high standards has to be a drag. Sure. And it's not. I think it's liberating. Yeah, it really is, you know. And so the uh, the the idea is, can you go in and have fun doing this to the degree that you can and realize I'm going to be doing all these repetitions anyway. I might as well embrace that and do it in a way that um, I can look forward to doing, you know, and, and have, uh, uh, you know, be at peace with that. Now, I used to think it uh, very, you know, sort of roll up your sleeves and, okay, here we go. Where is this going to be difficult? It's like, no, no, actually, I want the that initial phase of my playing to be not difficult. I'm going to slouch. I'm going to not take big breaths. I'm going to cross <laughs> my legs. I'm going to do things that are antith antithetical to the way that we're necessarily taught to continually dial up the precision and dial up the the accuracy and all that stuff. And so, you know, what would happen? Can I still be musical? I, my, 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 uh, you know, my favorite classical player is Maurice Andre. And one of the things I always liked about him is that it sounds like he just had a big glass of red wine before he played, <laughs> right? <laughs> it wasn't, you know what I mean? It, it, was, it was like, it was precise, it was beautiful and, uh, and warm and it just didn't ever seem like a big deal. Yeah. Right. The way he played and it was natural and it kind of it had this sort of lyricism, but it wasn't such a big deal. So I think there's an aspect of that that I'm searching for and that I'm trying to embrace in my own practicing. And that was something that was liberating when pandemic happened. Yeah, for sure. Do you mind if I ask a few questions? There's, oh, no, no, no. I know I can. <laughs> there's talk so like much for me to unpack in what you just said that I don't I'm not going to remember half of it. Sure. Yeah. The first yeah. thing that I want to respond with is. There is a slight difference between, to me, this is a slight difference between what you're describing and what I'm after in my own practice, is that you are looking for a system that serves you specifically, 
Mm-hmm. And I'm looking for a system that will benefit many, many people, right? Because mm-hmm. for the same exact reason, like I'm sharing my system that has worked for me. Um, and it's, and it's a very similar thing. It's born out of like, I decided I needed to like learn, basically learn how to practice, right? Like mm-hmm. it's the same kind of idea. I, I worked hard. I was willing to work hard. I was willing to go nose the grindstone, but I didn't really understand how to more or less control the process of me getting better. And what you described to me about needing this or wanting this sort of free open space to me, the answer, if I were to say, if like, if I would have coached you would have been try my system, then you would have been like, but I want this. And I'd be like, well then do this. And then we would, you know what I mean? Like to me, it's not different. It's an outgrowth of starting with something essentially, and then sort of feeling out what you're lacking. And what you described about the Donna Lee project will exemplify this beautifully. So you started out by just doing it, and then you realized you were lacking in some way. But the, the way you knew you were lacking is you committed to doing it a way. Like you have to do that, in my opinion. You can't just do it for a day and be like, that feels weird. Like you have to sort of commit to some period of time that you're gonna like fully flesh out and then realize, is this enough? And then you adjusted the project because you felt the project had value to you. It wasn't just like, well, this is weird. I did this for like two weeks and I didn't get anything done. So like, I'm gonna quit. So then you committed to another, you had two week timeframes, right? Like maybe not in an individual practice session, but you had like parameters around how you were gonna structure it, which I think is unbelievably important. And then you obviously set parameters also around the way you were going to do the work itself. It may not be structured in terms of tempo, but you had clear structure, right? Oh like, yeah. I was going to do it for this amount of time and then take this break and then do it loud for this amount of time. And what I what what that reminds me of is something I tell my students, which is I don't care what you play, I care how you play it. And this is how I think we circumvent the method problem, is we mm-hmm. just say, well, I need to work on articulation. I'm just going to pick this thing and work on articulation. It doesn't necessarily have to be an articulation method for us to be able to work on it. So you basically went the complete opposite direction and said, I'm going to work on every single skill with Donna Lee. Right. And I think, yeah. I mean, that is an application to me right of where you're what you you have this marriage of like well you also have this desire to spend time like i don't have any of that desire for me <laughs> to, to be free and open in sort of an improvisatory way because that's not what i do and so that that would be to me i actually just learned how i might encourage somebody to be able to you sort of like melded those ideas for me because you clearly had an amount of structure that I would be like, yeah, that's like how you go and do that. But you found a way to incorporate not only freedom, but repertoire that you desire to play. And that will, Mm -hmm. that will, uh, the most important part about any plan is adherence, right? You built something that you would adhere to that would actually allow you to like stick with it long-term to see the fruit of whatever the particular labor was. You've also built in multiple different levels of goals. Like the main oh, yeah. overarching yeah. goal was Donna Lee and figuring out this tune, but you that you didn't stop there. You were like, what if I play it like a Maggio? And then what if I play it soft and then articulate? And You know what I mean? Right. So like you're basically like living inside of this gold method thing that, that I feel like I, I developed mm-hmm. to help us do that. And you at least have three of them, which is goal oriented, right? You knew everything, like every single thing you did had a specific purpose. Oh yeah. The yeah. O is optimal starting place, which is like, where can I make it easy? Like this is a big problem. I think people miss this. Sorry to ramble. I think people miss this is you found where is it easy? Let me start there. Mm-hmm. Not where am I failing all of the time and then magically one day I'll just be able to figure it out. Like I think 
this is one part of the method that I I try to from an organizational principle is if we, we like if we want those ease uh, habits of ease we need to bring that into the present in whatever way possible. And this is where I feel like using exercises like violin or Arbin or Goldman can be incredibly va like valuable because on everybody's scale, they are quote easy. And so right. then you add layers of difficulty being the quality of playing. And are you consistently developing habits? Does that make sense? Like, I think actually yeah. most people need that. And then they would evolve into what you described. You just knew how to play the trumpet. So you didn't need that first intermediary step the same way other people might. That's at least right. kind of how I interpreted a lot of what you're sure, talking about. Sure, yeah. I mean, everybody's going to do do their own thing. You know, you know, the 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 when you talk about Goldman and all the all the, you know, violin or or various methods, I, I look at at integrating those things in um, if you're working as a as a professional or you're a student, you're playing in a lot of different you have demands that are that are placed on you by the literature that you're preparing. And then you look at maybe your practice time as a way of addressing things that are not required by your literature. So if, if, if you're playing third trumpet, you know, and you're doing a whole bunch of stuff, uh, in that register, maybe you need to be working on some top tones in your in your or some some upper register types of things that are not being required, so that you can use the structure of your practice to address the areas that are simply not being required by the 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 day-to-day -day playing you're doing at any given time, right? So if, if I'm playing a bunch of lead, which I'm doing like in this, this last couple of weeks, I'm not spending any time or very little time practicing any kind of exercises or anything but the charts that I'm working on that I'm, I'm going to be performing. So, um, you know, so I did just did a, a thing with the Columbus Symphony Orchestra with Tito Puente, and there was, you know, so I'm playing lead on that. Um, so I didn't do any exercises for that. I just worked on the Tito Puente. Um, it was a junior, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the, ex the music for that. I know how to play, so I'm not going to spend extra time doing uh, upper register work. Same thing for the thing I'm doing, um, doing Frankie Valley on Saturday. So I'm just looking, going through and making sure I can play the notes in the, in the, uh, in the, in the, t uh, the tunes in the, in the arrangements. And then I've got a, an original big band project that I'm doing with some folks up in Columbus also, you know, on, on Sunday. So I'm just working on the literature. I don't need to do exercises because the, if I can play the music, that's telling me that that I'm doing the right thing. So, so I agree with that. The one thing, one of the things that I think is, is you touched on interesting about sort of like a, a thing like Donnelly, this project, the framework that it provides for me at least, and I'm not saying everybody should do this at all, I'm not even recommending it, um, but the, uh, is that there's a, you know, uh, there's a, what's this guy, uh, Tim Ferriss does yeah, a, yeah. A, a, a podcast, and he asked one pretty simple question, he's like, what's the one thing that I could do that would make all the other things I do irrelevant? So in other words, what really combines, what's gonna combine the most sort of skill set, the greatest skill set that I can work on all those things, uh, articulation, transposition, uh, technical work, um, soft playing, upper register things, uh, you know, uh, chord work, and, and taking a deep dive in literature, in one small area of literature is allowing me to address all these different types of things daily. And, uh, you know, loud playing, soft playing, all of that. And, um, and it still feels like what I'm doing is is very deep, and and that was just something that was missing out of how I really got to know any other tunes or any other literature. I would play it for a recital, I would play it for an audition, or I would play it for a gig, and then I would go on. But I never really had that connection with the music that I've gotten from doing something like this. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you're what you're describing. 
like I just don't care that much about music you know what i mean like i care about music but i don't i don't have this uh need personally to be deeply connected to performing repertoire or liter. you know what i'm saying like i can right. play yeah, exercises yeah. And, and it's completely fine for me and it's mostly from a perspective of my mindset is i'm trying i'm using these exercises to try to find a reality that i will then apply to whatever repertoire i'm learning so really it's less about like to me, the exercises are all about more or less technical execution. Like, of course, I'm trying mm -hmm. to play in an interesting way, but it's more about understanding the mechanics of the trumpet so that when I go to learn something like Petrushka, I'm literally just playing Petrushka at different tempos. I'm not having to deconstruct Petrushka because I've already right. deconstructed other things. Um, but like like I was saying, I think it's important to me, at least to, to come back to like you've like using Donna Lee to work on all these skills really demonstrates. And the same then could be said for using like an Arbin exercise to work on every skill. Just take it up an octave, take it down an octave, all these kinds of things that right. like what we play doesn't matter that we have a specific purpose and understanding of what we are trying to get out of the particular thing does then right and it's like so that's like saying it's it's a goal-oriented aspect but it's deeper than like i want to work on donna lee right right it's oh, yeah. so much deeper and i think people don't think quite that intensely about what they want to get on a micro level like that within a five or a ten minute period it's like i'm going to work on articulation well how in what way no. long short loud soft which exercise how slow how fast like there's those two slow and fast do two different stimulus for your tongue and like they both are valuable how do you work like i i really think not that you have to go super deep you kind of as you describe build this over time about like what's the best way to go about doing it but i think it is valuable to think that deeply at some level about making sure you know like you're not wasting any time then like you said it's mental efficiency like everything is there i know why i'm doing it and i think even just that even just knowing i've said this before even just knowing why you're doing everything will completely transform your practice without having playing the trumpet any differently because i think you sure. just approach yeah. the work so much so much smarter yeah and i you know i'll i'll you know I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit or not backtrack but i'll just i'll, I'll uh, you know throw this in in this light I've been doing routines since 1990 of some sort. Yeah. So, and that was the most valuable thing that I learned about consistency and about being, you know, like what I tell my students is, is that, you know, the, the, the number one precondition for being excellent at anything is just being consistent. If you're inconsistent, um, you can't be excellent. That's by definition, you know, if it's, it's, and so the, the type of organization, the type of thoughtfulness that goes into practicing is, is gotta be organized. It has to be, you have to come up with that framework. I, um, I'm looking at those frameworks and those systems. You say you have a system of doing things. Um, Reinhardt had a system. Uh, Caruso had a system. Um, there, and these are still going, you know, uh, Bill Adam, the whole, the whole, uh, you know, the, there's a, a a system or a systematic approach. You see that a lot. What I'm always, uh, what I'm looking at is long over the long haul. What I've seen in my observation has been is that the system tends to take over, becomes the most important part of of what and and so where what I what I hope to do is is I would want my students to be able to get you know be systematic about the way that they do things. And again, you. You still have a, a preparation system. This is this is my routine for learning literature for the gig, right? Um, right. I'm just saying, but from an artistic standpoint, I want to play beautiful phrases. I want to take something and I want to learn to to really uh, get close to it. 
I'd like to outgrow the system. I want to outgrow. That's my goal is to outgrow uh, for yeah. me and for my students is to outgrow it and to and to be able to say, well, I still kind of do some of that, but I I'm always I'm always open to uh, to new ways of approaching. So then here's a to me this is actually a pretty a pretty important question to consider then is let's say okay for the sake of a, for or for illustration let's say from your ages of 20 to 25 you did system A 25 to 30 you did system B 20, 30 to 35 system C 35 to 40 system D right so you have four different systems that you did over the course of these years each one in your opinion is you outgrew each one and you had to build a new system based on how much you had grown how much you had learned what you valued where your career was etc do someone else who is 20 should they do system a or should they do system d uh what they have to do is they have to they, they want to get we have the opposite the student who's 20 has the opposite problem that we had in 1980 is they have too much information do you understand what the All question right. i'm asking though yeah, is? yeah yeah so okay. you can't uh so so what what uh i think i first of all i, I think you need a framework as opposed to a system. Here's how. Here are the things that I'm going to do in the course of a practice, and um, something that has some breathability, something that has some organization, but something that has you know this. It, it can be progressive as well you know, as we're learning it when we're going into into school. Um, I I like I, I don't want to think in terms of a specific system. Um, everybody's going to be different. Everybody's going to take. They're going to find this aspect of one system or this aspect of this kind of teaching helpful. I, there are, I have, we, we share colleagues that say, we'll describe certain aspects of playing that help them to conceive of someone's, you know, the one of a typical one is to say, well, I'm playing in the upper register. I'm not thinking up and down, I'm thinking out, okay? Uh, and I've, I've heard really great players and really great teachers use that, uh, that way of, uh, that analogy, and it's meaningless to me. <laughs> it doesn't help me. It doesn't help me at all. Sure, sure. And, yeah, I look at the register. I look at the the uh, the staff, and that goes up and that goes down. So, I mean, in my in my my way of of processing, I think what we're trying to do is is create an independent learner with the student to where they are are understanding what it is they're trying to do, what the demands are, and that they're able to sit in a room by themselves. Um, and figure out these things um, over the long haul. And that is, uh, that's the goal. And, and so um, all of the teachers, like even Vince said, you know, what I want, and I agree with this, you know, what I want from my students is they've got all my information when they leave. They don't have to keep coming back to me and asking, hey, I got to fix this, or hey, I'm having trouble with this, or I have, have uh, you know, uh, an issue, a chop issue or whatever. Now, I mean, granted, if you, if you run into a a problem in your in your 30s and you need some guidance yeah mentors are great but we don't want we want to have independent uh artists and and uh professionals by the time they're they leave you and that they have the wherewithal the toolkit to to figure out how to play yeah i totally i totally agree with this um you know there's there's two sort of separate points i want to make see what you think about it the first one being i think there are there are two distinctions that should be made here because what you described about thinking up and thinking down and thinking out, mm -hmm. that is a, to me, that's a pedagogical mm -hmm. thing versus we should play things slow or fast, which is an organizational approach. And to me, so, I guess the A, B, C, D thing, I think about it more from an organizational perspective. And the yeah, point, I guess the yeah. point I was making is 
I, I, you see this, I, I'm drawing a lot of conclusions from the fitness industry as well, because it's more pronounced sure. there. But basically, we can watch what what elite athletes or we can watch what elite players do as and then young players can try to imitate what they're doing. But like they shouldn't they're not at the developmental stage that that person is at. So they probably shouldn't be doing the same exact thing that those elite athletes or these developed players are their their system that would be right for them based on their developmental level should be different. Right. And so I'm not saying that someone couldn't get value out of practicing Donna Lee the way that you're practicing it, but it also may not be, um, it might be too complicated for them, right? Like it might be too mm -hmm. much variety. In my opinion, like young players need less variety and more consistency so that they can just sure. keep coming back. So that's just a thing I think is worth mentioning is I don't think you said that. I don't, I didn't hear you say yeah. that. I'm just thinking, yeah. just making the point, but that, uh, you know, the way that some people approach it when they get really personalized. This is how I like to do things. I think mm -hmm. um, we should take, we should try to understand why they're doing that. And then can we build something that resembles the why in our own practice without copying the what, because the what can sometimes be not where we're at. And then with the Vince DiMartino question, I mean, I think a lot of teachers want this. They want their students to be independent thinkers and players when they're 21 years old, when they leave, but does that actually happen? Like, do well, we follow up and do they actually understand everything and are they completely independent? Because my experience is no, they still need help after that. Well, I mean, we, we would love to have students who are 22 and wise, but the wisdom, <laughs> the wisdom that we're giving when we, when we talk about a lot of this stuff, I mean, yeah, your framework, the, the organizational system, all of that, I mean, to be consistent, you have to do the same stuff consistently. So you can't do different stuff. You have to start with just being able to play Clark three or whatever it is the same way every day and, and then have control over it and then be able to play it in different ways. And then, ha you know, you grow, you grow that from, from a core of material that is repetitive, that is, has, that shares a certain demands that you're, that is you as a student or as a player are going on, uh, through. Um, but a lot of the way we teach and our expectation is, is that, um, you know, if I'd have, if I'd have had this information, <laughs> you know, when I was 20, it would have really helped me. And it's something I actually mentioned earlier. It's certainly not true. I wouldn't have listened to it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, you know, and so the, uh, I was doing, um, Jose's, uh, uh, Johnson's, uh, podcast. And he said, what would you tell the 20, 20 year old version of yourself. And I said, well, I wouldn't tell myself anything because I wouldn't listen. Right. I'm the same. Yeah. Right. So, so we have all this sort of, you know, you get to be an older established professional player or artist and you've got all this quote unquote wisdom. Check this out. I've got this thing that I want to share with you. You're 20 years old. Um, that's received wisdom for a 20 year old. It's not earned wisdom. Mm -hmm. So you had to go out and screw everything up and have difficulties and struggle and then realize I've been beating myself over the head with, you know, doing A, I've been doing it wrong the whole time or I've been doing it, you know, I should have been doing this, I should have been doing that. But the fact that you had that struggle is what allowed you to gain the wisdom. So, so we sometimes talk about all of this stuff is, is if, you know, if we, if we gave the right stuff to a 20 year old, then they wouldn't struggle. And or, you know, or somehow that they would have this easy path and, th and that they would have a way of doing things that would, quote unquote, work. 
doesn't work that way. You have to go out and, and mess things up in your own way to get your own wisdom. So we we can, you know, uh, and and like you and the, the Chris Smith, you know, the stuff that he's he's put out. You know, when, when I look at, at the the level of organization and dedication and structure that you're able to implement and that you're you're, you're with and the progressive the, the way that it works for you is extremely admirable. I look at it and I go, yes, that is man, that's killer i love that shit you know just eat that up you know to, to watch that uh but the 20 year old version of myself would have gone would have just dreaded something along those lines yeah it's definitely for you a know, specific yeah. person who's yeah. ready yeah I, right. I, 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 some of what i'm doing yeah. is trying to be like for my 20 year old self be like you should mm -hmm. do it this way it'll be and like i wouldn't have listened but i i sort of have come to peace right come to yeah, terms yeah. with that now you know, and and so another thing that you know that we, we uh, that if you're talking about again, you go back to the the idea of efficiency, is that you know what's the least amount of this that I can do and get the most benefit out mm -hmm. of it. So, so if I'm going to do, you know, people ask me about flexibility, you know, and I love flexibility, and I wrote the books. The flexibility books were done compositionally and 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 improvisational. Uh, they were a, a combination of those things. And people look at me and ask me, you know, how much do you really practice that stuff? And I say, well, I do a little bit of it every day or sometimes not. You know, I'm not like some flexibility guru where I'm going to take all of my own stuff and everybody else's stuff and I'm going to spend inordinate amounts of time. I do them to get dialed in to get to where I feel like I can get around the horn and I stop <laughs> and I do something else. Right. So, so as you're, as we're looking at, you know, that idea of, you know, I just, I, I want to do some of that and get the benefit out of it. And if I have concentrated exercises, as you know, in, in fitness, that they're even finding more uh, benefits to shorter, high intensity types of exercise. And uh, uh, then, um, you know, for, for fat loss, you know, weightlifting for fat loss. It's like, wait a minute, there's research, this heavy research that says, you know, the, the, the cellular level of what you're doing, um, you know, the, if you do uh, weight weight training, changes your, uh, you know, you, you at the cellular level that allows you to do weight loss. Whereas we've, you know, pr primarily thought of aerobic types of activities as as a means of doing that. And so, you know, for high intensity playing, how much of that do you really need to do to to you know for your gig? Well, for me, it's very little in my practice, though I may practice. You know, uh, uh, you know, on a daily basis, I make sure I touch on it, but I have enough basics to get together to be able to do that. But I mean, uh, I thought I found that when I was trying to work on my upper, we were talking about this a little earlier. When I started to be, you know, be dedicated to becoming a lead player, I started doing exercises. Caruso studied with uh, somebody who had studied with Caruso and started doing that. And I was like, man, this isn't it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I can play higher, but it's not the right sound. Right, so I went from being able to play the notes to being able to get the right sound to sound like a lead player, and there's a big difference between that too. Yeah, um, you know, and I remember the day I got the sound from you know, if I would say where I sounded like a lead player, I was on 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 a gig, and it was with my big band that I'd started, and I was playing in a club, and the club was mainly empty, and I was playing lead, and um, I could hear myself off the back wall, and I was like, that's it. That's the sound. That's what I want to sound like when I'm doing this. And my first thought was, um, I'm hardly breathing at all. It's like I'm not. I'm not <gasps> tanking up and taking yeah, this yeah, giant breath. Sure. I was actually just kind of 
playing and it, it had the right it, it had the combination of brilliance and and ease that I, I was going for on that particular tune and I was like wow that was you know uh, I wasn't exactly sure how to get that back um, immediately but I knew that, that 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 was I was on the right track it was telling me that I was doing the right thing but I had to start a big band put together a library assemble the big band and then play in it every week for me to, to to get to that point and that had been going on for about a year or two all right so gosh i have this is so fascinating <laughs> i have so many questions that that are like it's just right up my the alley of of where i live the first one would be do you think caruso was a necessary step to getting that sound yes I, it, not necessary it was helpful yeah so like the idea okay. being that caruso didn't get you the specific sound but it possibly built up something that allowed you to yeah. then ask the next question and i think there's a lot of value to and to me, then, sometimes we can think, well, Crusoe didn't get me the sound, so then Crusoe was completely useless. Like, I shouldn't have done it. But I think thinking about it in terms of, like, well, did this thing allow me to ask the next question and the next question? And I think that mm -hmm. the value yeah. then becomes of how it all stacks on top of each other. The next thing that uh, I was thinking about was, you know, um, you talked about this with Scott Engelbright, and you just said it again just now. It's something that I, I have really been thinking about recently, and it is you're almost paying attention to what you're inputting into the instrument. Like, how much am I breathing, and how does that feel going into that? And you're watching oh, yeah. Scott, and you're thinking about what does it look like when he's playing, not mm -hmm. just what does it sound like, but what does it look like? To me, I've started to – well, not started to. I just totally believe this now. I think – I think playing the trumpet is a is a big if then statement. Like I've been, I've made all these like spreadsheets, right? So I think about if then statements. <laughs> to me, the trumpet is it's just one big if then statement. If I input this, then this is the sound that I get. And so if okay. I input the same thing every time, I should get the same sound every single time. Now that's not in practice what happens, but I think we should approach the instrument with that kind of mentality. So then then it just becomes, well, I haven't found the right sound. Like the sound is still the guy, but now we're paying attention to more variables that could affect the sound potentially, especially from a physical. And I know this is a bit blasphemous. Some people will say like, oh, you shouldn't think about this at all. But like, if I can think about breathing differently, like I think about breathing very forward on my chops, then when I release the sound, if it's consistent, like if it responds right away, then I think, okay, like I just do that now. I just breathe that sure. way and I have the, the, right, mm -hmm. the right response. And so do you subscribe to some sort of philosophy like this? Do you have a different approach from, because you talk a lot about, again, what it looks like and what it sounds like, not just what it sounds okay. like. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, what it, it's look and feel. So I play by feel. Yeah, me too. And that's how I learned how to play the way I play now. So um, my first first real teacher was a guy named John Winkler, um, who came out of uh, Vincent Chickowitz's studio in Northwestern in the early 80s and moved to Morgantown, started teaching at uh, West Virginia University. So I was studying with him in high school. So I was getting all this Chickowitz stuff, all this sound-driven, I was working on Charlier in high school and doing all the, and, and with a fair degree of success, but I had no chops. <laughs> I could, you know, uh, you know, this, this way of practicing did not, uh, did not, you know, really avail itself to, to being a, like a, you know, playing in the ba the big band or playing on the marching band field or, or doing the things that I wanted to do. Um, so uh, for the longest time I was, it was all sound. It was like, okay, you, it, it, with there, there was always sort of this guarantee, uh, either explicitly stated 
or at least implied thing. Like, like if you conceive the right sound, your body will do what it needs to do to produce that sound. And you do it by singing, you do it by, you know, listening, you do it by concentrating on this sound and your body's going to find the most of, and then, and the implication is, is that it's going to be the most efficient way of doing it, which I found to be for me, uh, absolutely false. Um, and so a case in point, I did all of this stuff. I, I worked on flow and for years and, um, I was doing a lot of lead playing when I started grad school here as a doctoral student and, um, had a bunch of junk in my sound, just crap, you know? And I sat down and I did all of the things that you're supposed to do every day with playing my, my Chickowitz and playing my Maggio and, you know, concentrate on the core of the sound. Imagine the perfect sound that you want, super methodical, day after day. And I just kind of wrote it off. I said, well, that's because I'm playing a lot of lead. I'm just not going to have a good low A flat or low G or whatever. And, um, and then there's going to be air in my sound. So... Um, I've eventually figured out, you know, Sergei uh, Nikirikov came to, to town and started, did an actual master class at CCM when I was a student. And I started watch. I was watching him and I was listening to him. And he said, you know, someone asked him some different questions like, uh, we notice you breathe through your nose. Is that so you can maintain your set? And he said, no, uh, no one ever told me not to. <laughs> so it's, sometimes it's a problem when I have a cold, <laughs> you know. <laughs> He said, in fact, my set moves. And I was like, what? Wait, hey, hang on a second. He's like, yeah, he said, Mendez moves side to side. He said, I, I move the mouthpiece up and down. And I was like, what? I was like, time, whoa, time out. That, you know, that's, you, I've spent the last 15 years getting everything rock solid and, you know, like Vince screwed in place. And this is the thing that where you've got, you know, one set and this is how you do it. And, and he was like, yeah, this is what, you know, this is, this is how I do it. You know, and I was like, well, you know, and, and so I started thinking, well, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> you mean there's no rule? Isn't there some rule that I've been, I had been, you know, kind of organizing everything by a rule that, you know, I had to find my spot. I had to find my thing and I had to ingrain it and I had to, you know, never move from it. So then you realize, okay, well, there's no, there's no rules for that. Then there's no rules for anything. Okay. And all that matters is, is that, you know, you, you be able to play the music as beautifully, as easily as possible, you know, with the least amount of damage to yourself. So, um, you know, well, the other thing I noticed about people like Engelbright or, or that other, that were just great players is they weren't, they weren't working that hard physically and they weren't necessarily practicing all the time. So I ran into a lot of really talented players along the way that I would say were kind of lazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and either lazy in work ethic or lazy, they just didn't, they weren't going to work that hard. They just did it, right? They didn't want to, there was a sort of a disposition towards the instrument that was not, I'm just like, I'm serious. I'm going to, you know, everything's got to be perfect. And, um, and so, you know, when we look at, you know, what's happening when you, when you're working on music, um, I wasn't able to clean up all the junk in my sound until I stopped worrying about it and started figuring out how to get from one note to the next more easily. So more gracefully, more quickly. Um, so when I started to move backwards in my disposition to where, how do I get the distance between the notes to be smaller? Um, when I started to do that, I, what happened was I was working on the music as if it's in front of me here, 
not at me. And then it also allowed me to, uh, once I could get through uh, a, a musical line, like say Tomasi or something like that, relatively easily, guess what? My sound got better. So instead of working on having a perfect sound and taking that setup and that whole way of playing and then moving it around, I worked at a reverse engineer to start a reverse engineer. How do I just get this music out? How can I play it with ease? With ease? And maybe it's small, maybe it's not the sound I want eventually, but I can't even get from one note to the next if I play it the other way, the way I used to play with my one and a half C and my 37 and my everything like that. And I'm going, okay, well, what do I have to do to get the music out? And then once it gets easy, guess what? The sound gets a lot more beautiful. And um, I found that, that, that having the criteria of everything that has to be perfect and beautiful and uh, when you're practicing to be something that was a deal breaker for me. And, uh, and I want to play beautiful music, but perfect is off the table anyway. So what can I do to get the music out easily? And that's what opened up my sound. When it became easier to play in that register, the sound opened up, not the other way around. All right, I'm going to share one of my more blasphemous thoughts <laughs> and see what you think about it. Because what you're just saying, make, it makes so much sense to me. And I I think, well, it's going to stand a little bit of opposition to what you just said. So we got we to gotta make sure, sure that we cool. at least can come to some common ground on this. Although Sergey moves the mouthpiece around and has different sets, my argument would be that for the vast majority of people, we should try to figure out if you can keep it in the same place and and get to a place of ease. Like, I think that we can get a little bit carried away with the idea that because some people have these idiosyncrasies with their playing that, that oh. are outside of the rules, that it means that someone who's like a freshman who can't play stamp, you know, means that, well, we should move right. the mouthpiece, for, you know, I, I mean, that's an extreme example. So to me, that's a, that's the first thing that's important to, to, to at least ground is that that vast majority of people should start in with some general approach and then build oh, yeah. out from there. Do you agree with that? And, and I, I didn't go around. I, I actually, I do, I do move not in the course of a day or of a night or anything like that, but I do make adjustments to where placement happens based on equipment and based on, you know, whatever, where things feel a certain way. I would never recommend to do that. I'm just saying right, my, right. my idea is just like, hey, you know, you can, there are different ways to do this. And maybe the orthodoxy is, uh, uh, there's a point where you can leave that or try, totally, to, try totally. to go beyond it. Yeah, I know. And I, I completely agree. One thing I like that you said is there's no rules, but earlier you talked about principles, which I think are so much yeah. more valuable that we just have this yeah. idea that there's an overarching thing that matters and we need to find our way to that. So then the yeah. next thing that I want to share with you from my perspective to build this case is when I studied with Barbara Butler, mm -hmm. uh, I walked in there and I did a lot of things really well. I could play loud, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I got into Northwestern, you know what I mean? Um, so obviously at that point, that was at least something. And when I sat down in one of my early lessons, she said to me, I do not care what you think you do well. I'm going to teach you how to do things correctly. And I thought this was such an interesting thing because that implies that there is a way to play the trumpet. Now, I know some of her students <laughs> have sort of struggled with, at least at a time, I don't think long-term they struggle, 
But I like for me, that was great because she basically was saying that there's so, what she would call the path of healthy trumpet playing. And she would say, okay. if you're on that path, it's never ending. You will never stop making progress. Obviously, it, it sort of <laughs> the curve sure, yeah. levels out at a certain point. Um, and I thought that to be interesting. So then combining these two ideas, right? One of well, the, give me give me an example of something maybe that you you uh, got from her that was different that you thought maybe you were doing it well and then let's you say something had like to, well and it's gonna I mean it's a really like convoluted everything is connected type conversation but playing loudly when I got mm -hmm. to her and played loud I could play loud but it was like that painful kind of loud right like uh -huh. it was really kind of aggressive I hadn't learned how to make it more about. Um, intensity of sound. I hadn't learned about how to use articulation to create volume without needing actual volume. And I, and there was the biggest thing she taught me how to do was play with freedom, that it was more about resonance and playing in the center, like the focused center of the sound rather than sure. trying to just generate volume. So then the more I leaned towards that, the freer and easier things got. All of a sudden I could play for long periods of time, right? So to me, yeah. endurance, I started to think about something like endurance as, as I technically understood and could play the instrument better, I got more endurance out of it, which makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. from an athletic point of view. If you become more efficient with the movement pattern, you get more of your potential energy back towards the movement rather sure. than losing it, right? Right. Well, I mean, endurance is two different things though. Endurance is, 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 you know, enduring being tired. Of course, yeah, that's, yeah. And it's also enduring doing what you're doing without getting tired, so, or minimally tired. But I guess, so, well, I guess what I mean by that is, and this is yeah. what I'm experiencing now in my playing, is it doesn't matter if I'm tired or if I'm fresh, I play the trumpet the same way. Sure, and yeah, so then yeah. at that point, it doesn't matter if I'm tired. Maybe I can't play at quite as high or for quite as long as I could previously, but the vast majority of music does not ask me to do that. Yeah, especially in the yeah, orchestra. Right, so, I mean, there are some solos where it does, and I just accept, okay, like, I programmed yeah. this. I might not be able to make it through this line, whatever, right? So I guess the, 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 the thing I'm headed towards then is I believe that there is a general correct approach to the trumpet that most people should up try first Bef and if it doesn't work for them after something we can talk about moving things around or we can talk about adjusting things based on what's not working but that there's sort of a general way we should we should try to approach fixing problems or approaching the trumpet and that this is going to be the most blasphemous thing is when I'm playing in my own practice, I don't care at all almost about what sound is coming out of the instrument. I care significantly more about what I am imprinting upon the instrument. Because, because if we focus on the sound, when we are learning to ingrain a new skill, the sound may not be what we want it to be, but it does not yeah. mean that over the course of two weeks of continuing to come back that our chops won't figure out what that is. And like you said, the sound won't get better. But yeah. I think if we focus only on the sound, we're, we will ultimately find in or suboptimal ways, non less efficient ways to play the trumpet, because we'll just so, yeah. sort of settle yeah. on, well, this is the sound that sounds good and it feels easy. Although I don't know what true ease actually is because I just settled for this spot right here. And I've worked with clients who 
it's like you just make a few of these little tweaks that are based upon like this is how the trumpet optimally works and they don't sound any different but it's easier like what you're describing sure. and so yeah. that those are that's sort of where i'm coming from with some of this is like a lot of my work is just trying to orient people towards like for the vast majority of people this is probably going to work for you and if it doesn't we mm -hmm. can start to address from from there i hope that makes sense yeah, no, no. It's a ba establishing a baseline of a point of departure. Yeah, you know, this is this is what successful people do. This is what these are some of the concepts that they that they have in common that they they voice and show and and write about and what the literature says and and uh, you know the the uh, the sound driven um, way of thinking you know has its limitations for you know extremes of of playing uh, you know and the the uh, you know, because people can sound good. You, you know, I, I say this to you know as a as a point of uh, ex, you know just something that I've experienced is you know having it playing something, and and people come up and they go, man, it sounded great, man. You really, man, you really sounded great. And you're thinking that sucked, that hurt. <laughs> yeah. That I'm gonna be, you know, that's I'm gonna be stiff and sore tomorrow. I don't know, you know. And so the, you know, the idea that you can sound good and not feel right, it doesn't feel right. Is is lost in a lot of ways, you know, of, of com communicating this sound-driven pedagogy. So, uh, you know, so it's it's good result, bad process, you know. So, so the 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 really good result is you finished playing and you still had, you know, gas in the tank. You still you're not going to be f overly fatigued or sore or, you know, you didn't blow yourself out and it still sounded good as well. I just can't imagine well. how it wouldn't yeah. sound good at the end of that, you know? Like, <laughs> if all things are equal, yeah. like, if you're making a good sound with an inefficient process, like, how would you make a worse sound with a more efficient process? And, like, where I totally agree with the Chickowitz approach is, like, how do you what we need and this is something i was going to ask you too when you talk about you know i have the basics of the trumpet set up pretty well so that i can just generally approach it well like how do we know when that happens what is the metric for like i have i understand this skill that i can possibly take some mental bandwidth away put it on something else like what's the metric yeah. and to me the metric then is the chickowitz school of like well it's the sound I want, right? Like with the lead playing, you found yeah. the sound and you're like, cool, that's right. So ultimately the sound is what matters. I just don't think that focusing on the sound is the uh, is going to always lead you to the most efficient way to do it. No, we definitely are in agreement on that. Yeah, for sure. That's, yeah. yeah, it's interesting to, because um, I grew up with, I mean, I grew up, I went to the Northwestern, you know, like that yeah. school was, <laughs> Yeah. and I, I, I get it again, like, as you've even described, ultimately the sound is all that matters. Like that's what people hear. That's what music is made. And so um, I don't. I think that yeah, that's true. But um, well, yeah, it, it matters to the audience. But for for the player, it has to be the the total experience. Yeah. If it's all, if you're if you're if you're thinking RPMs, you know, if if your face and and everything that is is running at high RPMs, you know, and, and you're you're redlining mentally and physically the whole time, it's going to be a drag. Um, the idea would be that it, that the the gig is easy enough that it's not it's not um, you're you're not you don't need all your resources. Wayne Bergeron said when he got to one of his first uh, not first, but he was out um, relatively new in the studio scene. And uh, I, man, who was he sitting next to George Graham, one of the one of the big lead players out in in LA, and, and but L Wayne was playing lead, and uh, he said that uh, you know he wanted some feedback or he got some comments you know from from 
you know, this, this established great lead player who was playing in the section with him. And he said, man, you he said that he told me, he said, you sound great. You're really, you're, you're really doing well, you know, and, and, uh, you're going to be fine. He said, but you're, you're running at about 95%. And he's like, I'm a, I try to stay, I don't want to go above 75%, you know, in the way that I'm exerting myself to play this, this music. And so part of your metric is, is that, you know, it's sort of like you have an idea. It's like how much, how much of my, you know, say bandwidth, but physical bandwidth, how much of my, you know, my capacity am I, uh, 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 using to, to perform this music. The first person I heard talk about it in those terms was John Hagstrom. And he was talking about the, the ability, the ability to relax while you're producing a musical sound is what allows that freedom to happen. So in other words, if, if you're really trying hard to get something out, you can't relax enough to get that resonance. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to relax enough to get the resonance because you're working inefficiently you're working too hard to get that you know to get that sound to come out so what was happening when i got when i noticed that i was getting the right sound out was that i was relax i was strong enough to be relaxed so i had enough basis you know basic fundamental chops that i could kind of back off a little bit and then that's when things opened up and he he gave the uh uh um hagstrom in a, and this is in a handout i've got somewhere you're talking about you know if you're again weightlifting if you're if your max is you know 10 pounds and you have to hold a a nine pound weight <laughs> you're going to be you know you're not going to be feeling too relaxed but if your max is 100 pounds you can hold a nine pound weight and you can drink coffee and you can talk on the phone or you can do whatever sure. it is that you want to do because you're not anywhere near your max and that's where the relaxation which which happens as a byproduct of strength so a lot of what all of the things that we've talked about today and the things that I talked to Chris Smith a bunch about, uh, when we talk about the idea of efficiency, and he, we're, I'm on the same page with him as this, is, is that efficiency comes from having, doing too much and then dialing back. Working too hard and then learning how to work a little bit more easily. Um, when we talk about students and building them, they don't just build up to the point of efficiency if they're taught correctly. They do the same stuff. They work too hard, they play too loud, they play, they use too much muscle, they, they have to get too strong, they overcompensate for the things that their, their weaknesses are, and they have to learn to dial back. And this is all done by feel. You know, this is, this is learning to be studying the way that you play from, from a, a sense of what it should feel like to play a piece of music behind the horn, behind the bell consciousness is, is one term that I've heard used for it. It's like really what's going on um, in my body while I'm doing this and where you f place your focus or where you play, where you're, what you're aware of, the point of contact. Does it feel like the trumpet is coming toward you <laughs> or are you meeting it? You know out in space and uh you know so i don't I, I don't get to the point with the way that i play now that i i beat up my chops even if i'm playing um you know demanding music because i figured out how to not do that so the idea of too loud to this to that is a com is a comparative statement right mm -hmm. and it then must be related to whatever the musical demand is so to me, somebody like, so part of what I've tried to do is divorce myself from the musical product being the thing that dictates enough, I guess, right? So like what you just mm -hmm. described about like, I can play the music that I need to play with ease and efficiency. 
and that is that's like what you want right so for me like i could play something like the carnival of venice fine and it would be enough right but like let's say too fast too loud too this or too that on a scale of mm -hmm. like me it's fine on a scale of sergey nikaryakov i have a very long way to go right and so right. then i think that part of the conversation is like, is it too loud and we dial back based on whatever particular music it is? Because using your nine pound analogy, well, what would, how would we get, how would we get to a hundred pounds? Where, how would we get to that strength level, right? Like uh, too many people are gonna try to lift 10 pounds over and over and over and over again, but that's yeah. not how strength development works, especially in a sustainable way, right? You would lift five pounds for many sets and many reps until you, first develop some technical proficiency and understanding how to move that way in a weight in a way that's going to stimulate the body in the way that you want it to right so it depends on right. what the exercise yeah. is and making sure that you're working the muscles and then sort of getting stronger within that capacity because generally speaking one thing i like about lifting weights is there's no objective end Right. There's no right. like once I hit 300 pounds, I'm as strong as I need to be. Right. There's people who are constantly pushing that line. And so you kind of have to, at least in my opinion, that's where a lot of my methodology comes from is it's and it's just exactly what you described. It's just taking that ease. If there's one thing I could have done differently, hypothetically speaking, it's just to take the ease you're describing and figure out how to bring that into my playing when I was 20 years old and then be mm -hmm. just willing to take yeah. a few steps back in difficulty of things to yeah. prioritize that ease and then just constantly hold that ease as I got more difficult so I could remain in you know flow state, all that kind of stuff, right? Where it's challenging for me to play with that ease, but I can do it with like enough focus and intent, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I would have done differently. And it sounds like to some degree you agree with that, um, but at least like you're prioritizing, and I completely agree, prioritizing that ease and then figure out how to build from that. Right. rather than yeah. like i'm just gonna because i just don't see how you hear these stories of people who like were in the practice room and they sounded horrible and they were constantly failing and that's why they can do all these crazy things today <laughs> and it's like from some perspective yeah but like also when would they have developed all those habits of ease and efficiency if they were constantly mm -hmm. failing over and over again no no and and it's it's a uh you know it I, I reserve the right to completely change my <laughs> mind on too, everything just... here. You know, I was, uh, you know, I had somebody that I ran into, an old student, and uh, and they said, oh, you know, wait a minute. They called me out on something online. I had posted something, and, and they're like, wait a minute. You, you, that's the opposite of what you taught me or you, you said to me. I remember specifically, you said, well, you know, I changed my mind, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and, <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's not a static, it's not a static situation. You don't, you don't figure things out. You continue to, and, uh, that's the, that's the fun, you know, it, it, the, the reason I didn't like practicing on it, I think when I was younger is, is I didn't have an expectation that I, in a, in one hour I was going to actually get better. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know how to go about doing sure. that. I didn't know what the process was. And, you know, and, and, uh, I had to figure it out. I, I, you know, you were talking about, you know, uh, earlier, you know, some, some places where you struggled, you know, there was a point where I got on a ship and I was on, I was on, I, I did like four cruise ships and I think I was going from the the second one to the third one. And on the second one, I, I was really dark and, and I was kind of, uh, 
you know, I, I wasn't being challenged by the music because the show was pretty mundane and, and we weren't doing, you know, it was a small group. So there wasn't a lot for me. Uh, and then I didn't dig the vibe in the ship. And so I was kind of, I was miserable mm-hmm. and very few times in my life where I was miserable in this particular one. And so I, I told the agent, I said, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going back for a wedding. Uh, but I'm not coming back to this ship. <laughs> and I said, if you, I'd love to play some lead. If you want me on another ship, I, I'll go some other ship, but I'm not coming back to this ship. So they, they sent me to um, a bigger ship and playing lead in a band that, that uh, and this is before I went to North Texas, and I didn't have the, the wherewithal to kind of do this job, and it was super demanding. And, but it was a really good band. It was where I met my first you know, connections for North Texas. And the the stuff was like you're playing along with like Jerry Hay, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Bob James soundtrack. You know, it was like this Vegas show and then also a Broadway show, and it was all I could do. I was really happy. I was like, man, this is great. This is really cool. And then there was a band down at the other side of the uh, on the other end of the ship that was from like uh, Boston, so a bunch of Berkeley cats and New England Conservatory cats. So they were playing tunes. So I would go in between the shows. I would go sit in with them. And I basically, in the first two weeks, I like blew my chops out, <laughs> chops out, right? And uh, I'd never done that, and I didn't know how to actually get any chops in the first place. I was sort of going through the Adam stuff. And, uh, and so then I tried to practice my way out of it. So it, I'd, get, I'd play the midnight special, and then I'd, I'd go to the buffet, and then at two in the morning, I would go to the, back to the dressing room, and, and I would try to practice. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was stupid, right? <laughs> and 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 so I just remember going back, and I'd be like, nothing, you know. I couldn't get a note out, and 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 I had kind of damaged my chops, I think, because I, I it took a couple of months before I I really felt like I was even, you know, able to function, you know, normally, and uh, you know, and, and I didn't I didn't know what I was gonna do. But I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't had the, I didn't have any resources. It wasn't, I didn't, it was nobody, there was nobody to contact. Just like I had to figure it out. I had to suffer through it. And it took months. It was like, ugh. You know, and I just, you just keep waiting to get fired. <laughs> and, you know, it didn't happen because it's a cruise ship. But, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't optimal. Yeah. Let's put it that way, you know. So, you know, and then there were other times after, after that, when I got to, you know, to North Texas, where uh, one of the hallmarks of, you know, the lab bands is that they play these ridiculously obscene tempos. So you're playing charts as fast as you, you know, and this, you know, everything is just the hard, every chart is the hardest chart you've ever played. <laughs> right. So it's like, well, you know, after the first rehearsal, the, the band director, you know, band leader said to the, he said, uh, yeah, the other guy's going to show you what you need to look at in the book. Right. So we went into the you know, jazz office and he said, okay, well, this one, you've got flugelhorn lead over a saxophone solo, solely. And then this one, it's, it's Freddie Hubbard's uh, transcribed solo on um, one finger snap and it's voiced out for five trumpets and it's at 300. And then this one is Clifford Brown on Brownie Speak voiced out for five trumpets and it's at 300. And this is, you know, and this has got to match Chick Corea, 300. And this is, you know, look at, and so basically I went through the whole book and every chart was something I had to look at. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like, uh, well, you can take a breather on this one. And, um, you know, but I was so locked up with tempo in those days. I didn't, te- I didn't practice tempo. I practiced chops. So I would try to 
practice these things at you know one fourth tempo or at sixty, and I couldn't even do that. I was so weirded out by it, you know, and my chops. I had to practice what I felt was like routine for three or four hours a day before I felt confident about playing. You yeah, know, yeah. and that was no place to no place to sure. be. You know, when you're when you're sitting there going, okay, I have to do just all of these exercises, and that was on me. It wasn't someone said practice three hours of exercises, and then I, I just it, that system took over, and I figured, well, some some is good, more must be right, better. Right. You know, and and so uh, you know, I had to break away from that, and it didn't come till many years later where things got started to get easier because I wasn't so micromanaging my chops. Yeah. I think in those kinds yeah. of situations, I think it's completely acceptable to almost do no routine. You know, like it's not going to last forever. You're not going to all of a sudden lose your ability to play the trumpet. You know? Oh no, no, I, no. But that was. Well, you don't that know was, that at when the time. You, when you, of course, you're psychologically you're psychologically dependent on on doing this, and and you've had enough success doing it that you're afraid to 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 depart from it. And so you know, we're looking at you know all of the organizational, the systematic ways of doing things. And framework as, you know, again, they're all, um, you, you know, they're all negotiable, you know, as long as, you know, you realize that, you know, I don't really need to do a bunch of this particular thing. I'm, I'm getting that in my, in my daily, sure, yeah. you know, in, in my, in music. So, well, but I really that, appreciate you being <laughs> willing to let me kind of dig, dig hard at some of these practice concepts. I, you know, just to share some of my sort of passion about it, I just think like, the more we understand these types of things, the more people will be able to build systems that provide them a lot of satisfaction and help them get better and they'll enjoy the process yeah. and look forward to the process of practicing, like you said. So I hope there is stuff in this episode yeah. for people that they can kind of take away and um, obviously getting to know you a little bit too. If somebody hears this episode and says, um, this guy sounds awesome, or like I have another title <laughs> for one of his flexibility exercises, um, how would they get a hold of you that they might be able to let you know? Well, I'm on Facebook, uh, you know, pretty active doing that type of stuff. Uh, scottbelk.com uh, is, uh, is my website. And the, uh, we've got Lipsler World Headquarters on Facebook as well. And then I've got a, a trumpet blog that's not super active, but there's some, uh, some resources on there. And that's trumpetshed.com. Dot com one word trumpetshed.com and I'm you know I've got a lot of writing that I've got to get up into that uh, slowly but I do I do put up some some fun stuff and and some things that I think are, are worth uh, you know maybe you know, at least getting a conversation sure. started well I'll be sure to link those things in the description so people can check that cool. out um, if anybody needs to get in touch with me you can do so at that's not spit.com. Also at that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode or had any feelings whatsoever, I'd really appreciate it. If you would <laughs> give a rating and a review on iTunes and also do not forget to share this on social media. So other people can find it and enjoy it for themselves. Scott, once again, thank you so much for giving me some of your time and just uh, being willing to chat. I had a great time and I hope you did too. Yeah. Lots of fun. No, thanks for having me. Uh, I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong. Be kind to yourself. Never stop growing. And we'll see you next time.
Hello, 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 that's not Spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. Today's secret message is to say that there is no secret message. Well, sort of. You see, I had so many ideas of what I wanted to record for today's message that I spent a lot of time just not recording, sitting around thinking about it too much. And in that space of indecision, I decided instead to get up and go do a chore for my wife so that she wouldn't have to. So, the message for today really is that in that space of indecision, it's always okay to go and do something for someone else. And remember, shh, don't tell Ryan.